The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. If you haven't been with us on a regular basis, we are going through the the letter, actually, of 1 Corinthians. It's not a book, it's really a letter, epistle, very long one, that the Apostle Paul wrote to uh, a church that he planted into this pagan city down in southern Greece started evangelizing actually went to the synagogues preaching to Jews trying to prove that Jesus was Messiah some believed most resisted and then he went to the Gentiles preached the gospel many believed says the book of Acts gathered them together established a local church and was their pastor for a year and a half in Corinth and they got saved out of a very pagan, unbiblical culture. And then, after a year and a half, Paul went uh, and served other churches uh, and also planted some other churches, went to Ephesus in particular, and he spent three years in Ephesus. And while he's in Ephesus for about three years, evangelizing, establishing churches, uh, the church in Corinth is growing. It's immature. needs help. And they began to develop a lot of problems Uh, in terms of their behavior became very self-centered and divisive and then doctrinal problems as well and then moral problems and Paul kept hearing about this from different sources and as a result he writes this letter 1 Corinthians to help his former church out and lets them know uh, here are the you know the things that you need to work on and they also wrote him a letter as the pastor asking him several questions we need help in this area what do you think of this and so Part of why Paul wrote 1 Corinthians was to answer specific questions they had sent to him through a letter and also uh, addressing issues that he's heard through other believers of what's going on in Corinth. Things weren't going well. There were some troubles that needed immediate attention. And in this correspondence, Paul lets them know early on, we saw it in 1 Corinthians 4. I know that was a while, but he let them know that uh, in the meantime, before I need to come see you, I need to be with you, you need my presence as your pastor, but also as, as an apostle. But I can't come now. But I, in the meantime, I'm going to send Timothy. He is a faithful servant. He basically represents me, and he'll speak for me. That was First uh, Corinthians chapter 4. And in the meantime, take note of what I'm saying to you in this inspired letter or epistle and address those issues, and then as God permits, I'll come and visit you as well personally to be with you. And so that's where we are at in 1 Corinthians 16. So let's go ahead and look. Uh, last week I gave you a handout there, made two points. Taking verses 1 through 12 together in 1 Corinthians 16, because they do go together, all sixteen or 12 verses in chapter 16. And we covered the first four verses last week. And Paul gets very personal at the end of this letter, as he always does. He gets very personal, very practical at the end of all 13 of his letters which is great because it's chapters like this, 1 Corinthians 16. Some people read this and think, oh, there's nothing there. Oh, there's no good systematic theology there. There's nothing practical there, blah, blah, blah. And they just kind of pass by and don't apply it. That shouldn't be our attitude. God wanted us to read this and apply it. There's something there for us very practically. It's rich. It's deep. So there are many lessons to learn from the conclusions of Paul's personal letters. As you read this, you see it is personal, very practical. We're also reminded... It's not a theological treatise. It's actually, we're reading somebody's personal mail. We are. Reading over Paul's shoulder, or the Corinthians' shoulders, we're reading their mail. That's what it was. It was a letter. And from it, we're able to glean just so many rich blessings as believers as the Holy Spirit uses this truth supernaturally even to teach us today, 2,000 years later. Absolutely amazing. And so the first four verses, Paul Let the Corinthians know I'm coming. I'm coming soon. Not quite sure when, but I want you to keep collecting this money for this offering that's going to go down to the poor in Jerusalem, as we've been talking about. And when I get there to Corinth, I'll collect that money, and then you folks, you can take it down yourselves to the Jewish church in Jerusalem and and bless them. Or if God allows and it's providential, maybe I can go with you and we'll go together as a team and bless the saints at headquarters in Jerusalem. So actually there are many principles of biblical giving in that 
uh, passage that we looked at last week. So that's one through four. And again, Paul says, I'm coming, I'm coming soon. I just don't quite know when. That's where we left off. Verse four, um, he says, and if it is fitting, if. So it's much is conditional in terms of the chronology and when he's able to come visit. It's up in the air. We just, I don't quite know. Uh, and so he's going to pick up verse 5. So follow along with me as I read verses 5 through 12, where he transitions now from the offering that's going to be taken from Gentile churches to be given to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. And now he transitions, verses 5 to 12, to talk about different matters. And there's several actually different matters. There's hospitality issues. There's planning issues. Um, many different. It's almost impossible to outline because he brings up several different issues. It's kind of the intangibles of ministry, actually, verses 5 to 12. The intangibles of ministry on a personal level and a corporate level. So let's look and see as he continues discussing in verse 5. But I shall come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia, and perhaps I shall stay with you or even spend the winter that you may send me on my way wherever I may go, for I do not wish to see you now just in passing for I hope to remain with you for some time, if the Lord permits. But I shall remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Now, if Timothy comes, see that he is with you, uh, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work, as I also am. Let no one therefore despise him. But send him on his way in peace, so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. Now concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren, and it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. So let's go ahead and look at verses 5 to 12. As Paul wraps up this amazing letter last week um the point number one was the local church one thing that we took away and gleaned as a practical truth was the local church is to support biblical ministry by giving wisely because paul really emphasized that this very strategic planned wise stewardship with money so we need to model that we need to replicate that the local church is to support biblical ministry by giving wisely and then let's go on to point number two and that is the local church is to support biblical ministry by helping practically helping practically not just with words nice words but actions and actually practical actions that are relevant to the need of the ministry so it's kind of an umbrella truth and there are many corollary principles throughout this passage let's go ahead and look at it after talking about uh, the collecting the offering, verse 5, um, Paul says, I shall come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I am going through Macedonia. And perhaps I shall stay with you or even spend the winter that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. So verse 5, but I shall come to you as I go through Macedonia. Just by way of reminder, Paul is now in the city of Ephesus. He's probably nearing, he was there for three years, so he's probably in his last year of ministry at that point in Ephesus, maybe going on year three. Uh, Ephesus is modern-day Turkey area. We knew it as Asia Minor in the New Testament. So it's from Corinth. Corinth is like southern Greece. Macedonia is up in the north. Macedonia was the area where those the happy churches were. Philippi, Berea, and Thessalonica. Those three churches that Paul planted and visited there's kind of a common thread and denominator. When you read Thessalonians, they were just a gracious church, a joyful church, an obedient church, supportive church. Paul's not having to defend himself. The same thing with the Philippians. As you read Philippians, what a happy letter. And a bunch of happy Christians. I mean, just their love and affection for Paul. And same thing with the Bereans. And they were biblically minded. They welcomed Paul's ministry. They scrutinized his teaching in light of Scripture, but they embraced his truth. So the churches and the Christians in those three cities, that's up in the north in Macedonia. Those are very supportive, loyal, affectionate churches. Contrasting that with the Corinthians who were becoming suspicious of Paul. They were arrogant. They were becoming critical and even hypercritical of him and his ministry. 
He has to write Second Corinthians to defend his ministry from their assaults because they had been poisoned from false teachers. And they developed a very negative attitude of their, their own pastor and an apostle. So uh, that's what Macedonia was, up in the north there. So there's a huge contrast in terms of the personalities and the temperaments of these churches. They all have their own personality. But Paul's over in Ephesus, and he's trying to plant that church, and things are going well, he just said. And his plan is to come and visit these Corinthians soon. Uh, so when he says, when I do, I shall come. That's his heart's desire. Uh, so there is some definitive comments that Paul makes. I, I shall come to you. But Paul knows that's really contingent upon God's sovereignty, ultimately. He knew the proverb in the Old Testament that man plans things, right, according to his agenda and desires, yet it's, the God, it's God ultimately who lays out the course, whether it's going to happen or not. We can make our plans, uh, but that has to be complemented by God's ultimate control. So he has a plan. He wants to come visit the Corinthians, but he's going to do some ministries. He goes through Macedonia. He's going to visit probably Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and encourage them by way of reminder, even though the Christians were kind and gracious in those cities, if you read Acts, Paul got beat up or chased out of every one of those towns by mostly hardened Jews. So this is pretty risky and quite courageous on his part. But Paul wasn't afraid of persecution. He welcomed persecution as a Christian. That's what he said in Philippians 1.29. You were called not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. That's the calling of a believer and a Christian in this world. Jesus said it in the Gospel of John two times, starting in John 7. The world hates me. That's what Jesus said. And then after that, he gave the promise, the world will hate you. And so Paul experienced that continually in his ministry. He experiences that even in this passage. If we are seeing persecution of Christians around the world, this should not be a surprise. It's the call of living for Jesus Christ, the gospel and truth in a dark and fallen world. So he's going to go through Macedonia, he hopes, verse 5. And then uh, after that, verse 6, he says, perhaps. In the New American Standard, it says, perhaps. Notice I said, if, in verse 4. If. Now, perhaps. It's conditional. I'm not quite sure. This is what I want to do, but maybe if it works out, okay. Perhaps. I shall stay with you when I come and visit you. And even spend the winter with you in order that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. So look at verse 6. The word perhaps, the word verse uh, in verse 4 is if. Uh, verse 7, he uses the word I hope to in the middle of the verse. This is what I hope to do. And at the end of verse 7, he says, if the Lord permits. So these are all these conditional statements. If, perhaps, hopefully, Lord willing, if. It's a great reminder for us, this is how we should live the Christian life. We need to plan deliberately, pray faithfully, in the end, trust God, His sovereignty, His providence. Here are my plans, here's what we want to do in the church, here's what I want to do with my life, here's what I want to do on an individual level, here's my heart's desire, here's what I'd like to do in ministry. We do that here at the church. Uh, we look out through the entire year, the scope and sequence of ministry goals that we have as a church. God, we want to do this, and we want to do this, and we want to do that. And much of it is contingent upon finances to do it. Much of it is contingent upon other variables and factors going the way they need to go to make it happen. Well, we can't control any of it. So at any time, God can say, no, I don't want you to do that. I'm going to direct you this way. I'm going to shut this door and send you this way. And that's what God does. And so Paul understood that. He understood that he was finite. He wasn't in control of life. He had his heart's desire. He prayed. He trusted the Spirit. He walked by faith, not by sight. As a Christian, that's how he conducted ministry. You read the book of Acts. Many times he'd say, I wanted to go this way in Acts 16. And the Holy Spirit shut the door and said no. And redirected him somewhere else. And Paul was in tune with the Spirit of God. Because life is dynamic. Life is fluid. Life is unpredictable. But Paul was in tune with the Holy Spirit. So he could discern and sense how God was leading. He could tell what an open door and a shut door was. That's hard to do. How in the world do you do that? How, do you, how are you able to discern the Holy Spirit when he's shutting a door and opening a door? Or if he's moving and saying yes or no? Uh, the main way to do that is by living a life of obedience. Really. If you are in the Word... 
and you were in prayer, and you were faithful in the little things, and you were obedient to God, that's how He can best direct you in an unpredictable life full of trials and roadblocks and everything else that comes our way. That's the only way to live life, really. It's, and ultimately, it's trusting in God. Trusting in Him. Do everything you can. Plan everything you can on your end. And in the end, you lay it in God's lap and trust Him to lead. He is totally sovereign. God, you are in charge. And this is so important. This is one of the main principles we can take away from this passage. Look at how Paul planned and did ministry. He wasn't a dictator. He wasn't a legalist. You guys need to do this, and on this such day I will arrive, and this is what we will do, and this and this, and then Timothy will come, and he will do this, and Apollos will do this, and this is the way it needs to be, and if it doesn't happen, I'm going to be upset. My plans will be foiled. Paul didn't operate that way, at least at this point in his ministry. He knew there needed to be flexibility. There needs to be flexibility in ministry and in life. And it's flexibility, trusting that God will lead. And that's that comes with humility. You, you don't need to raise your hand, but you perfectionists out there, you might really struggle with this. We've got to trust God and His sovereignty. Uh, so actually, I want to remind you, because this is such an important point here. Go to James if you've got your Bible. This wonderful reminder. James chapter 4. James is like a New Testament book of Proverbs in a of sorts, and here's this great proverb. Just a reminder for all of us. This applies to everybody here, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, whether you've been with us throughout Corinthians or not. Even though this book was written 2,000 years ago, that's what's so amazing about James 4, 13 through 16. Because if you are breathing and living and have any desires, plans, aspirations whatsoever for after church or tomorrow, this passage is for you and for me. And it's totally in keeping with how Paul lived life and did ministry in 1 Corinthians 16. Uh, James, the half-brother of our Lord and an apostle of the church, got saved. Then he he becomes a a critical leader in the early church, and he, he writes this amazing epistle. Verse 13 of James 4, he says, Come now, you who say. You know what? We could all put our name in there. Come now, Pastor Cliff. Come now, whoever you are. Write, literally write your name in there. You who say, you in the Bay Area, who have everything so strategically planned out, every detail of life. This is how we live. This is how we think. This is the American mentality, the working class. But today or tomorrow, we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there. Notice <laughs> it's a, a year in advance. You could die tomorrow. You could die this afternoon. Really? That's how fragile life is. Today or tomorrow, we shall go to such and such a city and spend a year there. You don't know that. That's, that is arrogant. That's presumptuous. And spend a year there. Now, that doesn't mean that we aren't supposed to plan because God does want us to plan. It's plan and then bathe it in prayer and trust Him in the end. Be willing to adopt and be flex, flexible along the way. Spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. And then there's the great reminder, verse 14, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You don't know what's going to come your way. What kind of challenge that might thwart your plans, circumvent everything. You are just a vapor. Our life is fragile and it is finite and it is short. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Poof. Instead, this is how we should plan our life. Verse 15, you ought to say, if the Lord wills. There it is. If the Lord permits. If the Lord wills. Uh, I'll do such and such tomorrow. So it, we can plan, but it's all the framework, the foundation, and it is all contingent upon if the Lord wills, and we truly have that understanding in our life. If the Lord wills that I actually graduate from college this year or next year. If the Lord wills uh, and I do this, and she actually says yes when I ask her to marry me. If he, I mean, on and on we go with all of our contingencies. Bottom line is trusting the Lord. If the Lord permits. That's the Christian ethic. If the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that to do otherwise was verse 16 but as it is you boast in your arrogance all such boasting is evil so don't be presumptuous trust on the lord um, in everything you do god is pleased by that he wants us to be children walking by faith and not by sight and he'll bless that as a result and that's how paul did ministry and lived his life all these variables and contingencies going back to first corinthians 16 so his plan is my heart's desire is to be with you Go through ministry, visit those churches, hopefully not get beat up or killed in the process. Come down, be with you, be encouraged by you. 
uh, he gets into the specifics of his plan of spending with the Corinthians. I shall come to you, uh, verse 6, and perhaps I shall stay with you if you'll have me. I mean, we've gone through Corinthians. We know from chapters 1 through 4 that there were some there who were incredibly critical of Paul. They made fun of him. They talked bad about him. They criticized him. It gets worse in Second Corinthians. Some of those people didn't want Paul to be there. They didn't want his presence at all. And he's saying, if you'll have me as your pastor, after all, I was the one that brought you the gospel by which you got saved. I cared for you. I love you. I pray for you. I'm an apostle, and perhaps I can stay with you or ideally even spend the winter. What is that? That's from like September, October, all the way till May. That was the winter season. And the reason, that was an ideal time for him to come to Corinth. He had to go by sea to get to Corinth. And if he tried to go by sea between October and April, uh, that was very bad and very dangerous in terms of the seas and, and traveling. So you just pretty much didn't travel during that time. So that would be an ideal time uh, to spend the winter if, if it will work out. That's extended period of time. That way he could stay for them for months and not just weeks. Some quality time, perhaps. I shall stay with you or even spend the winter in order that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. Now, this is an interesting phrase in verse 6. He says, when I get there, I'll spend quality time with you, and that, but I've got to go and keep doing the work of the Lord as an apostle, encouraging saints, planting churches, encouraging Christians elsewhere. And at some point, when I leave, you can send me on my way. Now, the, that phrase in verse 6, is a very specific phrase. Send me, says the New American Standard. Send me on my way. It's a technical phrase. It's used in 3 John verse 6, Titus 3.13, 2 Corinthians 1.16, Acts 15.3, Romans 15.24. Just so you know, throughout the New Testament, it's a technical phrase referring to the saints willing to send a missionary fully supplied on their way to do ministry. It's to provide for them formally and in tan- with tangible means. Literally. And some of the tangible means by which others have been sent away, sent on their way with material needs, providing financial resources, practical resources like food, supplies that he'll need to travel, and even companions, ministry partners to go with him. That's what that phrase means. Send me on my way. This is very interesting that Paul's willing to be sent on and formally supported by the Corinthians as a missionary, because while he was their pastor for a year and a half, he refused to take money from them. He didn't want to do that. He wanted to stay above reproach. He didn't want to be falsely accused of doing God's work for money. But here, where he's at in life, the church has been established. They have kind of their own quasi-leaders. They're surviving. God is meeting their needs. And now when he's ready to depart and be a missionary, he wants them to support him even financially. That's what that phrase means. And he's, he's trusting that they're going to do that. The right thing to do. And so really he's calling uh, the Christians to receive him properly and warmly, take care of his needs, to be hospitable, and to provide for him. That's why I put hospitality here. There are many uh, calls to being hospitable to missionaries and faithful Bible uh, pastors and leaders in this passage. Apollos, Timothy, and Paul by the Corinthian church. And, and the leaders in Jerusalem. So that's four different churches. He's calling them to be hospitable, sacrificial, giving, supportive with all of their needs. We had the privilege of doing that last week with uh, Vincent Hasamoa from Ghana. And he came and he spoke to our church. And he's visiting and he has a ministry in Ghana, Africa. And he's a, a man of the gospel. And he's a pastor. And our church received him warmly. He was incredibly blessed. He spoke here. Uh, two of our uh, families from GBF took him out to dinner in the or, provided him dinner and also lunch during the week. Uh, And I was with him for three days. And our church just reached out and blessed him incredibly. And he was just overwhelmed when he left on Wednesday. Thank you so much for the saints of GBF. Tell your people thank you. I was so incredibly blessed by this church. Um, So that was was wonderful. And in my mind, this passage is just resonating. Praise God, that's what we're called to do. So Vincent was blessed. So thank you, dear saints, for practically applying the truth of the word of god so going back to verse six so that you might send me on my way as a missionary wherever i may go there again he's just i don't know where i'm going i don't know where i'll end up next someday maybe i'd like to go to rome but who knows i got to be open about the future and trust 
God. Verse 7, For I do not wish to see you now just in passing. If I came now, I couldn't stay with you a long period of time. That would be too short. If I got two weeks with you, that is not enough time. And there are specific reasons it's not enough time. Just to catch up and have fellowship is not enough time. But also to solve all these problems and issues that have been raised. I, I need to spend an extended period of time with you to talk through all these issues and deal with all the problems because there was a lot of tension in the church already. And when Paul wrote this scathing letter, he raised the level of tension even more. If you go back and, re- and be reminded what Paul was saying, in chapter 4, he called them arrogant three times. Dear saints, hi, it's me, Paul, your pastor. You're arrogant, you're arrogant, you're arrogant. And he said, I'm writing to admonish you, to rebuke you. Wow, Paul. He also said some kind things and toned it down, but when he needed to speak up, he did. And he's really zeroing in. He knows that there is bad seed in that church. He knows that there are weeds among the wheat. He knows there are uh, the beginnings of what looks like false prophets. He knows that. And he knows that's the problem. And it's just the beginnings of that. And it comes to full fruition not long after in the Corinthian church. But he knows, you know, when I get there, uh, by the way, Paul did go to Corinth very possibly after this. uh, And it didn't go well. He refers to it in Second Corinthians, said it was a terrible trip. Uh, it was a, a trip of tears instead of falling out. He had to go back again after that because it got so bad. Uh, some of you, I'm, wherever I may go, verse 7, for I do not wish to see you just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits, uh, verse 8, but I shall remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. So Paul's writing from, from Ephesus. They're in Asia Minor. It's on the coast near the sea. He's been there probably for two years. He's been planting churches and preaching. Uh, The ministry was going well in some regards in Ephesus. That's Acts chapter 19. talks about the ministry in Ephesus. When Paul went, we don't have time to read it, but I'll just summarize it. Paul goes into Ephesus, and it's a pagan, huge pagan Gentile city, culture, port city. Cosmopolitan city. Yet there are Jews there, and so there's a synagogue there. So he begins preaching there. And he begins always, when he goes into town, there's a synagogue. He goes to the synagogue because he's a Jew. He's a rabbi. And they'll let the guest rabbi come and preach and speak. And so it says he went there, and he's preaching Sunday, Saturday after Saturday after Saturday in the synagogue to these Jews who are unbelieving Jews. And, he's pre- and it says he's reasoning with them. Trying to persuade them. Those are two very strong verbs. Reason, debate, and dialogue, and heavy, logical locking of horns. Well, what were they talking about? It said, and he was trying to persuade them that Jesus was the Christ. And then Acts 19 goes on and gives all these very graphic verbs. They became bitter. They became angry. They began to blaspheme. They basically chased him out. And he said, fine, your blood is on your head not on my hands. I'm going to the Gentiles. That's what the unbelieving Jews were like for the most part. Some, a minority, believe. The synagogue leader, Crispus, actually got saved. That made the unbelieving Jews really angry. As a matter of fact, that created a riot. A a mob rule, actually. The the town just exploded. Just before that happened, one of the first things when Paul got to Ephesus, uh, he met 12 men. And they had heard about the ministry of John the Baptist. And Paul said, and Paul had to give them the fullness of the gospel. Have you ever heard about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and of Jesus? They said, no, we only know the baptism of John. So he gave them the fullness of the gospel, and probably they believed and accepted that. So that was a fruitful thing, coupled with the fact at the same time, or concomitant with that, is this great persecution and resistance he's getting. And so that was his three-year experience at Ephesus, where he is under duress from persecution and running all over the city as they're chasing him, trying to, off with his head! At the same time, under this persecution and rejection, many responded and many believed. And those two can go on at the same time. Do you know that you can go into places of great persecution and resistance and at the same time have a great evangelistic ministry? Really, that's the iron. It's amazing. And that was what, what was going on in Ephesus for three years. So that's why we're going to read here. Let's go on and read it. Uh, you know, I need to stay in Ephesus uh, maybe for another year until Pentecost. Pentecost was around uh, Easter time, 
and when Pentecost is over, then the seas will be good for travel, so then I'll come around springtime or summer, and that's just the ideal time to travel by sea. That's why he says until Pentecost. Uh, so good travel, but verse 9 is the real reason why he wants to stay in Ephesus. Because God reveals to Paul, man, there's some effective ministry here. I know it's been challenging, Paul. The Jews have blasphemed Jesus Christ. They hate your guts. They spoke evil at him, it says. They mocked Paul. They denigrated his character throughout the city, undermining him as a person behind his back. Nevertheless, he stayed. And God revealed to him that for a wide door for effective service or ministry has been opened to me. Man, I can't leave now in Ephesus because uh, the gospel is going out. People are getting saved. Uh, after the, the tumult or where the entire city exploded in anger at the Apostle Paul because he was preaching Jesus as Messiah. At the same time, there was revival because it says many of the Gentiles and Greeks believed. There was revival. And many of these people were worshipers of the false god Artemis, the Ephesian queen. And they were into black magic and the, the dark occult. And they had all these occultic books. And they got saved. And it said many and many. They came and they just burned all of their evil books as they came in repentance to the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a revival going on in the city. And then there's a tumult in the city all at the same time. And it says the word of God went throughout the entire city of Ephesus. Huge city. And Paul's saying, man, this is awesome. It is effective. You wouldn't believe what's going on. The word of God is going out. People are being saved. And by the way, I'm being... I've been fear for my life as I'm about to be killed by many who resist me. That's why he says in verse 9, For on the one hand, there's a great door of effective ministry has opened to me, and there are many adversaries at the same time. It's a good lesson for us. Just because there's adversaries somewhere, that shouldn't stop us from ministering there. That could be true on a, uni- a secular university college or campus today. Where the establishment or the world view is absolutely contrary to Christianity. And you may have great resistance. But if you get your foot in the door, you can have an effective evangelistic ministry of those with softened and receptive hearts. So you got both at the same time. Great resistance and great receptivity to the gospel. We aren't supposed to run away from persecution. And that's why they say, like in China, where it's been a communist regime for so long, formally outlawing, Christianity and biblical truth while underground many are being saved and we know that was going on in Russia or the the Soviet Union for 70 years that's how God operates unlike for many years here in America where we have all this freedom and then you go and you preach the gospel and it's like yon yon you know and we don't get a whole lot of response and yet at the same time we don't get a whole lot of persecution either just kind of passive Response, for the most part. Very different than in these persecuted cultures. And that's what Paul has experienced in Ephesus. So, a great work going on there. By the way, he already said in the last chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, 32, he said he's, he's fighting beasts in Ephesus. He's fighting animals in Ephesus. And commentators don't know, were those real animals? Or like people acting like animals? That's a debate. We don't know. But if you read Acts 19, the people who were chasing him, They were acting like vicious animals. So that was Ephesus. Uh, So he's going to remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. Uh, There's an open door for ministry. I'm going to stay faithful uh, until I think God wants me to leave the city. And then verse 10, he transitions and says, and by the way, in the meantime, while I'm here, before I come, uh, I'm going to send Timothy to you, as I said in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he said, I'm sending Timothy to you. Because he's going to represent me fully. What he says is what I say. What he believes is what I believe. What he models in ministry is how I do ministry. He is the best replication of me, the Apostle Paul, of any of my helpers that I have in the ministry. And that, is, that was true of Timothy Paul's entire life. Timothy was an amazing, faithful servant and helper to the Apostle Paul. Willing to stand in the shadows and just be a faithful helper. And he's commended accordingly. And Paul calls him my child in the faith, my son in the faith, um, for, for many different reasons. So he had this great affection and love for, for Timothy. They were partners in the ministry. He was incredibly reliable. And Paul would send Timothy all over the place to this city, to that city, to that church, to these people to represent me faithfully. And Timothy was one of the few faithful friends and servants of the Apostle Paul for three decades throughout his life. Many turned against Paul. All the way from the beginning of John Mark, who became a coward, 
and bailed on the ministry team, putting the entire thing in jeopardy, to others who just point blank turned on Paul uh, with a vicious, evil, wicked betrayal. These were people who professed to be believers and Christians and missionaries. And they just turned out to be downright evil and undermining his ministry. He mentions that in several of his epistles, but Timothy was just the constant, constant friend, and that's, that is the highest quality of a friend. By the way, uh, he was a man of God. He was a younger man of God than Paul, but this is just a reminder of how every Christian man needs another man of God, at least in their life, over the years, who is faithful, unconditionally helpful, supportive, encouraging. And your common denominator is your love for Jesus Christ and your love for people. And that's what knit the hearts of Timothy and Paul together. And so he's sending Timothy there as his representative. Timothy, uh, two of Paul's most faithful disciples were probably Titus and Timothy. He wrote epistles to both of them. From what we can tell throughout the book of Acts, other epistles, uh, Timothy, the books of Timothy and Titus, Timothy and Titus were different in terms of their giftedness, but also in terms of their personality. And Paul used them for different situations. It seems It seems like Titus was a little more independent than Timothy, maybe more of a little aggressive kind of a leader, proactive than Timothy. Uh, it, it seems like Timothy was more of a peacemaker in terms of his temperament, his attitude and personality, which is exactly what Corinth needed. They were filled with division, cliques. And he could have sent Titus in there to whip him into shape and slap some heads and that kind of thing, because that's what he did when he sent him to Ephesus in the book of Titus. Boy, these, these people need to be silenced. And he, he uh, had Titus, go get them. Go get them, Rover. Corinth needed something different. They needed a peacemaker who was very good with people in terms of his disposition and the way he interacted and interfaced with people. And that's pretty clear about Tim, Timothy's attitude. He got accused sometimes of being timid, afraid, soft-spoken. But it was to his advantage as a very godly man. And so Paul's going to send Timothy to do that very thing, to make peace, to be strong. He was strong. Even though he was somewhat passive, more so than Titus, he was still very strong, spiritually speaking. And so that's why Paul strategically says, you know what, I'm sending Timothy uh, to you. As a matter of fact, Timothy will probably get there after this letter that I'm sending to you. Uh, Paul probably sends the letter of 1 Corinthians with three other servants mentioned at the end of this book. And so the letter's going to go directly there. The Corinthians will get the, the letter of Corinthians. They'll read it, and then they are prepared. Okay, Timothy is coming very shortly. And here's how Paul wants the Corinthians to receive Timothy. He says, now when Timothy, if meaning when Timothy comes, he's coming. And if he makes it through Macedonia alive, he's coming, hence the if. See that he is with you without cause of fear or to be afraid. Actually, there's two different translations, depending upon your English translation. See that when he's among you, he is not fearful, is one translation, which is totally legit. Or don't cause him to be afraid. Don't undermine him. Don't disregard him. Don't turn him away just because you're mad at me and I said some harsh things to you and he's my representative. Don't take it out on Timothy. That's one possibility. Or the other one is, see, notice while he's with you, he has no fear. That's also a legitimate translation. He is strong. Why is he strong? Because (laughs) this is key, the middle of verse 10, towards the end. Notice that when he's with you, he is fearless because he is doing the work of the Lord. He's doing the Lord's work. When you are doing the Lord's work, you are faithful, you are obedient, you're operating in the power of the Spirit, you are fearless, as fearless as a lion in the power of the Spirit. And Timothy was willing. I know we know he had courage because he's willing to do this. He knows. He's been debriefed. He's been to Corinth. He knows what possibly awaits him, the potential rejection and the tensions that are there and the division. And Yet, he, nevertheless, Timothy went in obedience, which means he was a man of courage. And he went because he was doing the work of the Lord, the ministry of the Lord. And God sustained him. God protected him and made him fearless in their midst. And Paul said, that's what you should expect when he comes. You know Timothy. He's the quiet guy. But he is strong. He's strong in the Lord. Because he's doing God's work and he's doing it on my behalf. As I also am. He's a perfect representation of me and what I stand for. Recognize him accordingly. Verse 11. Let no one therefore despise him. 
disregard him, look down on him, whether he was because he was a younger man or because he was an associate of Paul and they're mad at Paul. But whatever you do, if you, diso- if you despise Timothy, you're despising me and you are disobeying God. So be hospitable. Hospitality means stranger love. And there's also brotherly love. Welcome someone from afar graciously, lovingly. Have open arms for him. And that's what Paul is asking of them. Don't despise him. Open your arms to him. Then, when Timothy's ready to leave, there's that technical phrase again in verse 11, send him on his way in peace. Send him officially as a missionary, as a pastor, as a man of God. Send him uh, taking care of his practical needs. Make sure he has enough money, enough supplies, enough resources, that his companions are okay, that he can travel properly and safely. That's what it means to formally support. Own him as a church, as, as one of your own. It's the highest level of hospitality. Send him on his way in peace. It's one of the goals that Timothy had was to bring some peace to this very divided, schismatic church with all their cliques. Send him on his way so that he may come to me. For I expect him with the brethren. So Timothy's probably traveling with a team of men. As we've seen throughout the... I mentioned this last week in the book of Acts, throughout the epistles... Uh, there's no Lone Ranger Christianity. The missionaries, the pastors, and Paul, they're always traveling with a team of people. Accountability, encouragement, safety, protection. There's so many practical safeguards to operating with a team in ministry. It's not a one-man show. This is for your good. This is also for Timothy's good. Then verse 12 Now concerning, which probably means that phrase, now concerning, now concerning, now concerning, that means. Probably the, the Corinthians wrote this in their letter. Hey, Paul, can you answer this question and this question and this question? And one of the questions was, so uh, can you update us on Apollos? And so Paul's going to answer that in verse 12. We know from Acts chapter 18, uh, Paul plants the church at Corinth. He stays there for a year and a half. He leaves. He goes to Ephesus. Then Apollos comes to Ephesus. He gets the fullness of the gospel. He is amazing. He's powerful in the Scriptures, mighty in the Scriptures and in the power of the Spirit. He gets the fullness of the Gospel, and then he hears about the church in Corinth, and so he wants to go there. Paul planted the church, was there for a year and a half, and then Paul says, uh, I'd like to go. And so then Paul, uh, Apollos goes to Corinth after Paul planted that church and was there for a year and a half. And then in Acts 18, just one sentence, when Apollos got there, he was well-received because they wrote a letter ahead of time to the Corinthians. Apollos is coming. He's an amazing man of God, and receive him as a man of God, and they did. And we don't know how long Apollos was in Corinth, but he made a huge impact. He encouraged the saints in Corinth. He taught them the Scriptures in a mighty way, and he also refuted those who opposed publicly with the Scriptures. And then Apollos left the city. And during that time, uh, most of the Corinthians were blessed by his ministry, some illegitimately so, that they made these loyalties that were idolatrous towards Apollos. Wow, Apollos, he is more uh, of a rhetorician than Paul. He is more eloquent. He's a better speaker. You know what? I think I like him better than Paul. That's exactly what happened. And it became a click. And he became an idol, an icon that was illegitimate, taking away the glory from God and pitting the Apollos against Paul when they were partners in the ministry. So they're competing with one another. And so you had the Apollos group in the Corinthian congregation that Paul had to squelch. And so one of the things that Paul does in five chapters of this epistle, he says, you know what, Apollos and I, we're not competitors. We are brothers in the Lord on the same team. I plant, Apollos waters, God brings the increase. Christians can't be competitive or territorial in ministry. It's all about God and His glory, isn't it? There's a practical lesson. So concerning Apollos, our brother, so they were inquiring, man, he was good. We liked his Sunday night seminars. Can you send him again? When is he coming? And Paul wasn't jealous. So he reaches out to brother Apollos and asked him point blank. He said, I encouraged, I, I did talk to Apollos. I actually encouraged him greatly to go back to Corinth and bless you guys in ministry. 
uh, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren, with the team of brothers. Uh, but it was not at all uh, the will to come. It doesn't say his desire. It's just the will. It was not either God's will or Apollos' will at this time. I asked him to come. He can't come. There's your answer. Is Paul, Apollos coming? No. But he will come when he has opportunity. So that's very important um, that Paul wants to preserve unity in the church. And if you want to attack and undermine a church, you start at the leadership if you're Satan. And you undermine the leadership, the unity in the leadership. If you can undermine and create division in the leadership of a church, it'll affect the whole church. That's the quickest way to destroy a church. Paul knows that. He knows how important it is. He's going to do everything he can to preserve the unity he has with his brother in the spotlight, Apollos, to be a model of unity for these divided Corinthians. These immature divided Corinthians. Because that's what ultimately is the problem with a Christian who is divisive. They are spiritually immature. They are spiritually self-centered, self-focused, their agenda. And that's spiritual immaturity. So Paul is just setting an exemplary example for them. And he calls them my brother, our brother, our brother. He's in our family. We're on the same team, people. Let's get rid of these cliques. Well, with that, let me go ahead and close. Just, I gave you some practical takeaways from this amazing passage, and let me crystallize those for you, for all of us as a church, uh, from this passage. Here they are, uh, in light of these wonderful truths. Our church does not exist or function in isolation. GBF is not a cul-de-sac. It's not an island. Uh, one thing that we see modeled in this passage are Paul's reference and care for the saints all over the place. The church in Jerusalem, the churches in uh, Macedonia, which would be uh, and also uh, Philippians, Bereans, Thessalonians, Corinth, Athens. Churches all over the place. So that cosmopolitan worldview, all the churches, the universal church, we need to have the same attitude. It's not just about us. That is modeled in this passage. Our church does not exist or function in isolation. Number two, we are part of the greater body of Christ, which is a corollary truth. The body of Christ extends beyond the borders of GBF. We need to always keep that in mind. Uh, point number three, we need to be aware, concerned, and support what God is doing abroad. We need to get our eyes up and see what God is doing locally within the America and abroad to the uttermost parts of the earth. We've been blessed as a church to be able to do that more and more in the last five years see what God is doing across the world, and even locally, continually in partnership with local churches around us. Uh, Number four, we need to support the Lord's work. Uh, Chapter 16, verse 10, that's the phrase, the Lord's work. That's why Timothy was to be commended and accepted. The Lord's work. He wasn't just doing the social gospel. He wasn't just a do-gooder. He wasn't just helping the poor and only helping the poor. He was doing the Lord's work, which first and foremost is the propagation and dissemination of the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves eternal souls. That is the Lord's work. That is the priority. That's what the church needs to do. That's the great commission of Jesus Christ. We need to stay laser-focused on that. Everything else attends to that, supports that, is a corollary to that. We can't lose focus. And Paul is emphatic. The Lord's work. Jesus Christ is the Lord. He is the epicenter. He is the circumference of all that we do. Number five, we need to be hospitable to visiting Christian ministers and ministers just passing through open arms to these brothers and these sisters who know Christ. By the way, the word hospitality in the New Testament, just about every single time, some people say, well, it's stranger love. That means uh, open up your home to people you don't know. That's not the biblical definition of hospitality, stranger love, in the context. Look at every example in the New Testament. Stranger love is, yes, opening your arms, not just your living room, Opening your mind, opening your wallet, opening your life to strangers. What strangers? Strangers who are pilgrims. Fellow believers coming from afar is the main usage of that word, stranger love. So it's not direct. There aren't examples in the New Testament of every poor person on the street in San Jose, let them come to your house for dinner. That's not what it means. 
It has to be limited. It has to be prioritized. We have to be good stewards. So this hospitality is the love of the brethren that is very specific and strategic in furthering the advance of the gospel. And the reason that word was so important here in among God's people, hospitality, especially at the Church of Jerusalem, is because believers were coming from all over the world, three times a year at least, as pilgrims in obedience to God to come to the temple during the feast. They had no place to stay. And the believers of the Jews in that town had to open up their doors to accommodate God's people. That was stranger love. And we need to welcome them as they're passing through. <laughs> we do that. I, I, we have visitor after visitor after visitor. People come to our church, oh, never met you before. Where are you from? Well, actually, I'm from North Carolina, but I'm just passing through because I got an interview here at Google, whatever, and may get it, may not, and then I'm leaving. It's like, well, we need to open our doors. We need to welcome this brother or sister in the Lord if they're a Christian. Make them feel at home. God's people are everywhere around the world. It's a beautiful thing, the family of God. And then finally, we need to plan. We need to plan. Some of you are very good planners and detailed planners. We do. God likes that. He honors that. He will bless that. He will reward that. We plan. We do what we can do. And then we give it to God. We trust God. Okay, God, here are my plans. I give these to you. I trust you with the details and with the future. So we, we are to plan and yet trust in God's leading and also in God's sovereignty. You know what that is? That's just resting in Him. The God is sovereign means God is totally in control of absolutely everything. Every variable, there's nothing that takes Him by surprise. It's all in His plan. He works all things together for good. I mean, that is just the greatest truth that gives comfort to God's people. At least it should. It should put you at rest. If you're a hyper person, prone to anxiety and the future and what's going to happen and all of my plans, you need to rest in the sovereignty of God. That is His command. He intends it to be a blessing for you and for me. Every one of us is concerned about the future. What if, what if, what if. We can say what if, but then we have to put it in God's lap. Trust Him, pray, and we know. We know it is a fact. He will be sovereign. All things work together for good for those that God loves, His called and elect people, all for His glory. That's a great truth to go to lunch on. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day and, the, again, the opportunity to be with your people, the saints here locally. Thank you for the reminder and the model of the Apostle Paul who loved saints all over the world. He loved unbelievers all over the world and was just an avid evangelist, and we need to continue to cultivate that as well individually and as a church. God, help us to rest in you. Help us to put our anxieties behind us help us to cast them into your lap knowing that you care for us because that's what you tell us thank you for the amazing reminders from your word that you are in control of all things you do as you please it's all for your glory you will work all things together for good even bad things and horrible things you will work them out in accordance with your plan help us to be reminded of that to believe it we we believe yet we need help with our unbelief god and so we thank you for the indwelling holy spirit who does that very thing for he is our comforter and our counselor and God, we just want to give you the glory for all these things. We thank you for your ongoing provision, protection, and leading. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.